Let's pray. Father, that is our desire, that your presence would fill us individually, corporately in this place. Today, we would see you. We'd see you manifested in the way that we think and the way that we live, decisions that we make, decisions that we don't make, because we need you to do the work in us. We're grateful that we're not dependent on ourselves, but on you. We're grateful for your word that gives us the truth, shines a light on our hearts, and, and leads us towards ultimately you. Thank you for each other, for the body that we have together to encourage and be encouraged by to continue to press on in this race, the race of living for you, the race of taking the gospel to a world in great need. And so would you enable us to do that? Would you use this time? Would you use your word to do that, to equip us, prepare us, remind us of what's true of us, so that when we leave this place this morning, there'd be a greater awareness of the fact that you live inside us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Continuing on, I, I preached a few weeks ago and, and looked at the passage at the end of, of Romans 7 and into chapter, chapter 8. And, and as different opportunities between now and the next few weeks, we'll be kind of making our way along here. So... Uh, I got to say this though, and, and it always sounds funny to say that a particular chapter or passage is, is better than another in the Bible, and yet this one has just been for me personally just so enriching as I've spent time in it and seeing what's true of us. I think what's most unique in some ways is that it's written to encourage the believers. It's, it's written to encourage us, to tell us what's true of us. Um, in, in fact, as I'll make note later, very little does it call us to, although there's a response that we have but it, it certainly paints a picture that we want to follow and, and tells us of what's true. So I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 11. We're going to look specifically at 5 through 11. Romans chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the thing, things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you remember, this is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. And he's writing to them, having never visited them, certainly is hoping to. And at the end of this letter, he says, 
I hope to visit you and then move on to Spain and expand the work of the gospel there. As he writes to them, he, he writes to them in, 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 with a couple of reasons in mind. One, he does want to build a relationship with them. He has not been there, but heard the report. And so he's, he's writing to, to build a relationship. And he does that by giving them the gospel. And in giving them the gospel, he wants to unite them together because he knows he's heard that there's some dissension between Jew and Gentile. And certainly one of the issues of the early church and the difficulties was, what does it mean for the gospel to come to Jew and Gentile alike? What does it look like for it to be applied in both settings, to a Jewish setting and a Gentile one? And what does this look like as it's impacted? And so he writes to portray, to, to give them a picture of the gospel in an attempt to unite them together. The first five chapters, he really unpacks the, the condition of humanity, the human condition that each one has, either Jew and Gent or Gentile, that both are true, that both stand before God in need of his grace. That what's true is that they stand before God as a judge and they're silent because of their sin. That each one of us, as we stand before God, has nothing to claim for ourselves, that we're sinners. And not just that we sin on occasion, but our whole being is given to sin. That we're bent towards it apart from Christ. And then he unpacks in this idea of the righteousness of God or our right standing of God, before God, that's, that's given to us. It's an alien righteousness that comes from Christ in the work that he has done. And in chapter 5, he talks about the peace with God that we have that counters the, the conflict, that counters the condemnation that we have. And in Romans 5, 8, he says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have a picture of the gospel there. From standing before God in need and deserving of, of death... We now have peace. Instead of being in an animosity with God, we now have peace with him. And then he goes on in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and deals with particular questions that he has. And, and chapter 6 has to do with questions of ongoing sin. Chapter 7 has to do with the law, the role of the law and the limitations of the law. And when, when I spoke last time, we really saw that the law was designed to do one thing. It demonstrates the holiness of God, but it leads us, as we attempt to follow that which pleases God, it leads us to a need for a Savior. It reveals that we need more than just a list of do's and don'ts. We need some, someone else. And so the conclusion of chapter 7, when Paul says his, his conclusion is... Uh, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of sin. And he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So he understands his conclusion. The law brings him to the point that I can't do anything right on my own. I find in myself a need for a Savior. And so as we move into the end, uh, to chapter 8, there's an there's a introduction, if you will, of some, a new person, a new, uh, new spirit. And, and it, it replaces the self. It replaces Paul as he says, you know, I find this law at work in me of sin. And what's replaced in, in chapter 8 is the coming of the Spirit. And so the whole of chapter 8 is characterized by God's Spirit dwelling in his people and bringing them a kind of confidence, a certainty, a security that they have, not because of what they do, but because of what God has done by sending the Spirit to live in their lives. And so we see God's, the gospel unpacked even further here in chapter 8. The very first part and the last part are bracketed by one phrase. It's very significant. Verse 1, we see that Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he concludes this chapter with that same phrase, when he says that nothing else will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. 
So that same, that phrase of being in Christ Jesus, with his, which is a, a full pregnant, as they say, phrase, understanding or picturing for us what it means to be unified with Christ, what it means to have unity, to be in union with him. There's no condemnation. And it ends with this picture that nothing can separate us. And this, so the entire chapter is a picture, an ex, a description of what it means to be united with Christ with an emphasis on having the gift of the spirit, the, the gift of God's presence in us that comes from being united with Christ. We see that the, one of the essential characteristics of being in Christ is that God dwells in us. Throughout this passage, the spirit dwells in his people and he does certain things. He calls them, he enables them to, to live certain kind of life. And so there's a, a characteristic there. And indeed, one of the main characteristics of the time in which we live the era in which we live is, is the, it is the, the era in which the Spirit of God dwells in his people. That prior to Christ's ascension and prior to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that was distinctively different than the time, the era in which we live. We live now in this time where God says, I will dwell in you. I will live in you by my spirit. In the passage I read at the call to worship in Ezekiel chapter 36, and there's many other passages in the Old Testament that look forward to the times in which we live. Those times characterized where God says, I will dwell in you. And that passage in Ezekiel where, where God says, I will put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my ways, to walk in my statues. I will cause you to care for the things that I care about. And so what he does is what the law could not do. He says, I'm going to send my spirit. And the spirit will do be at work in you, causing you, making you, not like robots, but forming you into the kind of person that honors me, that honors my statutes, that cares for the things that I care about. And so we see that this time in which we live is defined by that, that the spirit has come, has brought in the kingdom of God, is, the language of, of Paul in Acts, which is the kingdom has come, and yet it's not come fully. The Spirit dwells in us, and he reminds us of what the future holds, but he's not completely there. So the age in which we live, and, and indeed that's the whole backdrop of chapter 8. It, it, it's the truth of the Spirit indwelling us, but it's not completely here yet. There's more to come, and that's why the questions and the issues that we have, the, the issues of, of continuing to battle with sin, the questions of doubt that we have, the suffering that's a part of our lives, the questions about what happens after we die that are all addressed in chapter 8 are dealt with here because there's an already not yet aspect of what God is doing. He has already sent his spirit. He has already marked us, and yet there's more that will come. And so throughout the, the entire chapter 8, as, as Paul unpacks for us what the spirit does, it's like a crescendo like a crescendo through the entire chapter that increases and gets louder and louder throughout the chapter, revealing what God does, revealing the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but a confidence in God, giving us a kind of security. And so that's the point. That's the purpose of this entire chapter, to give us a confidence as we live and as we walk as believers in the spirit that indwells us, God that lives in us. Because the gospel is is about forgiveness. The gospel is about God justifying our sins, but the gospel is about more than that. God doesn't end with that. He says, guess what I will do? I will fill you. I will come and live in you and enable you to please me. 
It's about God's power and ability to make us completely and wholly his in the context of real life. This is the gospel. Not just forgiveness, it is that, but it's more. It's what Paul is doing in this entire chapter. He says, look, there's more to the gospel that's here. And so chapter with that, as a, as a backdrop of, of chapter 8, let's look at chapter, verses 5 through 8. Two different sections going to look at, 5 through 8 and then 9 through 11. The first section there deals with really the, um, the subduing of the flesh and the dealing with the flesh. And you see there, as you're, I'm going to read through this again, you will see that there's a line that there's kind of, there's two different regimes. I'm going to use that, two different rules that are present in 5 through 8 that, are, that, that Paul talks about. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you see that there's two regimes, there's two things set up here. You've got the flesh and you've got the Spirit, and they're antithetical to one another. And indeed, they're mutually exclusive. And Paul says, I'm going to paint a picture for you. And he says, there's the flesh, and this is what the flesh looks like. The one who lives in the flesh, the mind is set on the flesh. It's death. It's hostile to God. It doesn't follow the ways of God. It can't submit to God. And so this is a picture of what the flesh looks like. And then he says, there's a picture of what the, the spirit looks like. The, the one who's in the spirit, the, we understand that the mind is set on the spirit. And it says, it's life and it's peace. And so there's two regimes at work here. Now, it's not to say that we don't struggle with the flesh, even for those of us who are believers, those who have received Christ, who have the Spirit. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. But what's most true of us, again, is that the Spirit indwells us. What's most true about us is that we are in the Spirit. Now, we might question that, and we struggle with that at times, and the flesh is there. But Paul is not addressing the battle of the flesh here. He's just merely stating what's true. For those who are in Christ... The Spirit indwells us. The Spirit lives in us. And so he, he draws this line. And you see there that the, the picture of the flesh is, is clear. It's, it's, it's set on the flesh. The mind is set. It's death. It does not bring life. It's hostile to God. It's rebellious to God, to the things of God. It doesn't want to listen to the things of God. It hates the things of God. It cannot submit to God's law. And indeed, Paul goes on to say, it can't submit because the flesh is only concerned with itself. The flesh is bent towards self. It's bent away from God and can't hear or receive that. And then it concludes, Paul concludes this, this section with this statement, those who are in the flesh can't please God, cannot find themselves acceptable to him. Only those who are in Christ, only those who have the presence of God indwelling them. And so we see that this is the characteristic of, of life in the flesh. And then he, he contrasts it with a life in the Spirit. And simply he says, he contrasts all of that with those in, in verse 6, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So we ask the question, what is it that the Spirit is doing here? What is it that he does? And it's very clear, right? He moves a person from the flesh. He subdues the flesh and moves us from death and hostility to God into a new category, a new age a new period of, of being or existence, a new reality, and that reality is characterized by life and it's characterized by peace with God. Many of us move from age to age, right? And as we move from one age to another, we leave something behind and we enjoy benefits of the new age, of something that comes. For example, I have a son that's about 14, 14 and a half. He's moving into what age is that age? 
the driving age. Okay? And as he moves into that period of time, 14 to 16, and he moves, he doesn't have his license yet. If you've been there, you know what this is like. You move, that's all you can think about for a while. You get your license and you move into the age of the driver, right? I'm now a driving age. All that was behind is left behind and the whole new, my whole new life is ahead of me. And so we shift from one age and we gain the benefits of the new age and leave behind the detriments of the old. What happens at the age of 25? You get to rent a car, right? You, your life insurance, or not life insurance, maybe that too, your car insurance goes down. So you gain new benefits as you move into that new age. As you turn 50, I've been told, you get other benefits called AARP, <laughs> right? And so there's benefits that you get as you move into the new age. And as we, as we think about the benefits of moving into the age, into the regime of the spirit, we have benefits of being in Christ. All that is in past is left behind we're, moved, we're moving into that. And that's what the Spirit does. He ushers us into that new reality for us. And it's real. It's not just subjective. It's not just what we feel or think. No matter what you might be thinking, if you're in Christ, the truth is that God dwells in you. And so as Paul unpacks this picture for us, of the, the picture of the gospel, a picture of what the Spirit does, we see that he moves us from one age into the next. That he moves us from... Life, or he moves us from death and hostility into life and peace in a relationship with God. And what a, what a wonderful picture. To understand what he has done, he has given us life. He has given us eternal life. He's given us peace with God. But what, what's interesting is Paul kind of uncovers this for us. And he says, this is what, what happens for those who are in the spirit. This is what you get. And it certainly ties to themes ties to themes throughout the book of Romans of death. He says the wages of sin is death. And he describes what we most need is peace with God. But even further back, we find that these, these terms, life, or these terms death and hostility are, are threads that we find all the way back at the very beginning. That they're echoes of what took place at the very beginning at the fall. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. This is important for us to see what the Spirit is doing in each of our lives. What he's doing corporately as the people of God. He is saving us. He's bringing us from death to life. But he's doing, if I can say this more clearly, he's doing something even more. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 15 through 17, God's words to Adam here in the garden. He says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of evil, of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, the, the promise, the, the part of that, that command that God gave was that there would be death that would come. And indeed, God, knowing what would happen, that death was a part of the fall. Death spiritually, certainly, in that our relationship with God is severed. But death physically as well, that we would be subject to death. So we see death is a, is a part of that. And if you'll turn over to chapter 3, verse 15, we have the other half of this. We have death, that the flesh brings death, but then also it brings hostility. Verse 15, one of those kind of key verses, the first part of the scriptures for us that unpacks really the rest of the scripture, where God, in, in cursing the serpent here, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel. And you shall bruise his head. And we have a picture here of the curse that God placed on 
on the serpent, we certainly have a picture as well of the gospel, kind of a glimmer, the first glimmer of the gospel. What's important here for, for our purposes is that word enmity. I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. It's the same word in the Greek form of the Old Testament that Paul uses when he says that the flesh is hostile to God. What comes as a result of the fall are both death and hostility. Death in that our, our spirits die, and hostility in that we are rebel there's rebellion towards God for those who would stand against God. And so the flesh, we have a picture here, is we tie it back to the garden, we tie it back to the fall. And so the picture for us that Paul is painting of what is it the Spirit's doing? He is moving us from death to life, from hostility to peace. But even more than that, he's reversing the effects of the fall. He's reversing what took place in the fall. He is in all of humanity, all that would be his, all that he dwells in. He's reversing the death and the hostility that's there. And he's bringing life and he's bringing peace to those of us who would follow him. And, those in whom he dwells. And so there's a reversal that's taking place. Reversal of the fall. And that's what the Spirit does. He comes in, he not only creates, but he recreates in each one of us. And so we ask the question, what is it the Spirit does? He brings from death to life. Yes. The picture of that is a recreation. It's a reversal of the effects of the fall in each one of our lives, in each one of those who would live by the Spirit, who would follow what God desires. We can see a picture of that if you'll turn with me in Galatians chapter 5. There's a picture of what this death looks like, like and what this life looks like. I mentioned earlier that Paul, as he writes here in, in, in Romans, he's merely writing descriptively. and He's painting a picture of what the Spirit does. Galatians, he's had, he has a different kind of angle. He, he's really commanding and he's saying you live a certain kind of way and the context of the letter is helpful to go, okay, now, but in this case, in Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 19 through, I'm going to read the uh, four verses through 23, we see a picture of death, and we see a picture of life. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, they are self-evident, they reveal themselves to be what they are, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, divisions, Oh, miss, uh, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a picture of death, right? That's a picture of hostility. Not just before God in, 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 um, in violating his laws, but even against each other. But then he goes on to describe what life looks like in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, this is what the Spirit does, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then he adds this line, against such things there is no law. There's no restraint to carrying out those things. There's nothing that needs to limit any of those things. What the Spirit does in a person's life is life, and it does not need to be limited. Whereas in the first list of things, you see what the Spirit brings is death, or what the flesh brings is death. And violates that. So we have a picture of what Paul is talking about, is what the Spirit does. He's reversing the effects of the fall from death and hostility to God to life and peace with God. And the question we ask is, what's our response to this? When we see what it means to live by the Spirit, when we see what that means and we see the picture of the flesh, and, and, and the response is seen in the, in the text there, again, not as a command, but as a just the outworkings of it as we understand it. He says that those who set their minds on the Spirit, 
will walk in the Spirit. Those who, set, who follow the Spirit will set their mind on the Spirit. Those whose mind are set on the Spirit is life and peace. And so the result for us, what it means for us, is that we want to set our minds on the things that please God. Set our mind on the things of the Spirit. What does it mean to do that? Well, a couple things that's important for us. One, it's not a one-time deal. We don't, at one point in our lives, although sometimes we wish it were, we set our mind on the things of the Spirit and we don't have to deal with it again. The, the, the tense of the verb tells us that it's an ongoing process of setting our mind on the things of God. And indeed, it works its way into every facet of our lives. We take on His purposes. We take on His plans. We take on the things that please Him. We took on his values. It shapes every facet of our lives. In a similar way that as a driver moves from the age of non-driving to the age of driving, they take on the mind of a driver, right? At least we hope they do. They take on the mind of a driver, and they see everything differently, right? They see road signs, and they see, you know, speed limit signs, and they see other drivers, and they see people who are walking. They see policemen differently, right? When you enter that, and so we have... As we take on the mind and spirit, as we set our mind on those things, we think differently. That's what God does. That's what the spirit is doing. As he reverses the effects of the fall, he then enables us to set our mind on the things that please him. Well, the passage goes on from this, from this where Paul says, says, here's a picture of the flesh and a picture of the spirit. And then he says, but you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He says, here's a picture, but I know what's true of you. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And he goes on to say, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we find that, that the work of what God is doing reversing the effects of the fall, but he's also doing a couple of the things, and we see it pictured in this passage. He's answering a couple questions for us that I think are very important. The first one is, who are we? Who are we? What is our identity? And then the second one is, what's our future hold? There's two different parts of this, and you'll see, even at the end of verse 9, he says that those, and, um, anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to God. And he's getting at the picture of, who is it that belongs to God? It's the one who has the Spirit of God. A couple of things that are important for us as well, just to, to get our hands around. One is that word dwells is in here three different times. And it just means that God dwells. He takes up residence. It's an ongoing, active reality of God living in his people. The other word you might pick up if you're reading through this, you'll see that if is used three different times. And in verse 9, it says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in verse 10, but if Christ is in you. And then verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if, and the question we need to ask is, what's the point of the if? Is he questioning if these things are true or is he affirming that they are true? And I think because the entire chapter is given, its, it's focus is on encouraging the believer that to give the believer a confidence that what he's doing there, he's saying, if in fact the spirit of God lives in you, and he's saying, and that's true, I know that to be a fact, and these are the, the results, these are the benefits of that fact. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is subject to death, the Spirit is life. You don't have to worry about what happens in the future. It is taken care of. And then verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also raise your body, your mortal body, by the same Spirit that does that. So you see that, that, that this if is to encourage them 
And he answers these two questions. Who am I? And, and what does my future hold? And, and, and answer to the question there in verse 9, it, you know, as he says, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of God does not, does not uh, belong to God. It's a clear message to us that as we understand who it is, as the Spirit dwells in us, the fact of the matter is, is that we belong to Christ. If the Spirit is a marker, a sign of the rule of God, and it's a guarantee of what's to come, then it's ultimately a mark of ownership. God has placed his mark on us. We live in this age, this era, where God dwells in his people. And it's a mark of ownership that we're his. And it gives us an incredible amount of comfort because we're not our own. It doesn't mean there's not responsibility. It just means that, that there's another one who will care for us. There's another one who will provide for us. There's another one who owns us. And after the last service, I had a guy come up and say, man, that, how incredible is that? I forget that God owns us, that God is, that I'm his. I'm not autonomous in that respect. And so it grounds us. It gives us a kind of certainty that we can live with that enables us to live, even in the midst of struggles and living, wanting to live a life that's honoring to him, even as we wonder about what the future holds in terms of jobs and relationships, finances, suffering that's there and difficulties, medical tests that we receive, we can know for a fact that somebody owns us, that God, that we belong to him. And that makes a huge difference in terms of our, our certainty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a poem. It's called, Who Am I? It's, uh, I'm taking it from a book called The Call by Oz Guinness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the poem. I can't read the whole thing this morning, but I'm going to read the last line of this poem. Because in the, the, the first part of the poem, he, he con contrasts two different perceptions of himself. He says, you know, there's one perception that as I see myself, or as others see me, is confident and together. But there's another perception that I see of what's really part of me. And as he concludes, there's a tension that's there. What's true of me? And he concludes the tension like this. He says, who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Who I am, thou, let me, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. He says, in the midst of all the questions, the one question, the one answer that silences them all, is the fact that we belong to him. That as the spirit dwells in us, that we are his. That we belong to God. And because of that, our future then is certain. Because of that, as Paul goes on to describe a couple of questions that seem to be there in the back of the, the minds of the Romans, the questions of, of life and death and what happens. And certainly you wonder, what does the future hold? The most important thing about our future, though, is that ultimately... Our future is tied to the one that we belong to. Our future is tied to the one that we belong to. And if we're God's, then, we can, then he has set our future. And if we're his, then we can have a great confidence in what he will do. And that verse that's used so often, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, later on in this chapter, Romans 8, 28, says that we, you know, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that the future is right, and we know that it's sure because we belong to God. 
But Paul addresses these questions of life and death. He says, if, if you're in Christ, the body is dead. We're all going to die. The body is subject to death, and it's a part of the reality. But the life, the spirit is life because of righteousness that's in it. So there is life. There's hope. Then he goes on to deal with the question of the mortal life, our bodies, what's going to happen? And he says, again, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus's body will do the same for you. And you see there the importance of the union with Christ, that our unity with him, because the same thing that happened to him will happen to us. He died. We have died. He was raised bodily. We will be raised bodily. The same spirit that did that, we have an assurance and certainty of our future that the same thing will happen, that our bodies will be raised. Only this time, the next time that we're raised, the resurrection of our bodies, it's not, we will not be liable to death any longer. We'll die once, and then we'll be resurrected. And so Paul says our future is certain. He says that what's the spirit do? He extends, he helps us understand our redemption and understanding that we're his, that we're not our own, and that our future is certain because it's tied to the one in whom we, to whom we belong. A number of years ago when, when I was on staff, our family was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we, we, a number of years we led teams to Mexico on missions projects to work with college students, and it was always a, a great time. But one of our first trips that we made, I think is our second trip, we went, we took the whole family, all the kids were really young, and we were, we're heading into a kind of interior, a, a town that was, um, we had to go through Mexico City to get to it, basically. Mexico City, if you've been there, is, is at times and places not a very safe place. But here's the thing, as we, this particular trip that we went on, we had a particular bunch of students, but one student in particular was, um, was a new believer, excited to go share his faith. He just happened to be six foot five, 290. Uh, Jason had played football at the University of Miami, played football at the University of Nebraska, and was coming with us on the project. And, and on that project, I still, as I think about, you know, here's Jason, we're walking through the airport in Mexico City, 6'5", here's my family, here's Kelly, Cameron, Lindsay, and Libby walking through the airport, here's Jason standing next to them, because we would say, Jason, would you just walk right next to them? Would you just walk to the airport? And as he would do that, there was a confidence as a result of his presence tied with them. When I would go change money, you know, I'd take several hundred dollars for the team to go change money. The pesos, what I would do is say, Jason, would you come with me? Would you come with me and change money? Of course, right? Because I would go and he would walk with me and he would stand next to me and, you know, and I could hold the money. I could do whatever I want to, right? Because I'm with him. I didn't. I was with him. Let me bring this home. If I was with him and I'm, we're walking in a, in a sketchy area and somebody came up and asked me, who are you? You know what my answer would be? I'm with him. <laughs> my identity is tied to who he is. I'm here. That would bring confidence. And because my future was tied to being connected with him, I had a great confidence in how the future would turn out. Now let's multiply that times an infinity. Okay? Is that a number? Mathematicians here. We understand what the presence of God does in our lives. If we understand that he says, you are mine, that that's true. It's an objective reality that does not change. And no matter what happens in the future, no matter what happens today or whenever, as long as we're tied to him, our future is tied to his future, and we know that it's good. We know that there's confidence because he dwells in us. He lives in us. And here's the beauty of this, whether we realize it or not, 
I think as I was writing this and working on this passage, the thing that drove home to me that God continued to say, one, when you, you don't live like this, when you really don't live that like this is true, you forget most of the time that I dwell, that I'm in you, you, you think you're on your own and you live as an orphan. And so you have to work on that, go, no, okay, no, I believe that this is true. But the fact of the matter is, it's to, to remember that and to live that out that we belong to him and our future is tied to him. Now the question is, how do we respond? The, the easy response, again, there's no command here, but as we see what it means to be connected with him, to be his spirit dwelling and living in us, we find that our response is to want to live in a way that honors him, to want to live as those who belong to him. If our identity and our future are now tied to belonging to him, then the whole of our lives should reflect that truth. If our future and identity is, are tied to him, then the whole of our lives need to reflect the reality that we're his. So every facet of it, what a wonderful message, what a wonderful picture for us to understand what the Spirit has done. He's reversed the effects of the fall, brings us from death and hostility into life and peace with God. He enables us to walk with him. And then he gives us a great confidence in our future. He helps us to know who we are. Now, the reality is we still live in the already not yet, and Paul will continue to unpack this, this message. This is true, and we do experience it on occasion, but there are occasions where it's challenged. But the reality is we, as we bring this objective truth of God's presence in our lives, of the identity that he gives us, and the future that he, the hope that we have, we can live in this, in this period of time, this age called the already not yet. Let me pray. Father, we, we confess that we, we, don't, that we don't get it. Um, like a, a driver who's driven for years and years, we forget the, the benefit and the beauty of driving. So we, as those who have walked with you for years, sometimes forget and neglect the full truth of you living and dwelling in us. And we kind of go about our lives on our own, and I confess to be the first to do that. What a great message, what a great truth that should infuse our lives with a great passion, which should give us that great foundation in which to live and a great confidence and security through which we can live our days. I'm so glad that this is true. Would you continue in each one of our lives to reveal this to be true, the full reality of your presence living in us, remembering who we are and whose we are, remembering that our future is, has great hope because of your work that you've done the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.